Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined on this episode by Dan Seligson. Hi, Dan. Hey, Miriam. In September of this year, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. May her name be for a blessing. As people took to social media to grapple with their grief, Jewish ideas about the afterlife were suddenly being discussed in a public and widespread way. Some folks, and this includes Jews, said they thought it was offensive to say things like, she's in a better place or rest in peace in response to the death of a Jew. That's because there is an erroneous yet remarkably widespread belief that Judaism does not embrace the concept of life after death. Having waded into these Twitter arguments, it became very clear to me that a lot of people are confused about Judaism's varied thoughts about what happens to our souls after we die. Interest in this topic isn't really new. In fact, the most read article ever published on Jewish Boston is, I've always read that Jews don't believe in the concept of hell. Is that true? By Rabbi Baruch Halevi. This article has been read almost a half million times. It's so popular that if you Google, do Jews believe in heaven, Rabbi Halevi's article is on the very first results page. So to help us explore further the Jewish ideas of heaven, hell, reincarnation, resurrection, and more, we are thrilled to welcome back Rabbi Halevi to the podcast. listeners, before we get into our conversation, we want to offer a trigger warning. This episode includes brief mentions of suicide that some may find upsetting. If you are struggling or need support, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Rabbi Halevi, a.k.a. Rabbi B., thank you so much for joining us today on The Vibe of the Tribe. Miriam, Dan, it's really fantastic to be back with you all. I'm excited to talk to you and on this topic. So, Rabbi B., your article about heaven and hell is the most read and probably most commented on article on Jewish Boston of all time. Why do you think people are so intrigued and confused by Judaism approaches to the afterlife? The old saying, what, two Jews three opinions. I think it's partially because there isn't a bumper sticker answer. Do Jews believe in X? You fill in the blank. It's always complicated. And I can't think of a more complicated topic than, you know, the soul, does the soul survive? The bottom line is whatever Jews believe, that's up to them. I can, you know, I've been asked my whole life, what do Jews believe? And my response has always been, I have no idea because they're (laughs) so complicated and we're so complicated. All I can tell you is what Judaism believes. And Judaism unequivocally believes in the soul, in the divine and God, and in something in between. So let's talk about those ideas from Judaism about what happens after we die. It might surprise some people, as it did, Dan, how specific Judaism can be about the afterlife. In the Talmud, we learn, for example, that seven things were created before the world was created. So those are Torah, repentance, the Garden of Eden, Gehenna, the throne of glory, the temple, and the name of the Messiah. 
So here we have the Garden of Eden and Gehenna set right there as the things created before the world was actually created. So talk us through what is the path uh, a soul takes after death? What is the role of Gehenna in the afterlife? And what are some beliefs about the length of time our souls spend there? I think it's not surprising, actually, how detailed it gets. Jews have a ton of names for God, a ton of names for the soul, and a ton of details about the description of both and where they come from, where they are, where they're going. I think you can learn a lot about people, about a culture, about a religion, by how detailed and nuanced it gets. And I guess to the point of this conversation, Judaism has a lot to say about these details because details matter. And when it comes to something like the soul and the soul's journey, there's a lot of there's a lot of stepping stones. So often I talk to people who think it's black and white. You're here, you're gone, body, soul. Everything of worth and worthwhile is, is more complex than that. Right? My love of my, my wife and my children, it's complex, it's nuanced. And same is true with the division between body and soul and, and life and death. And, and so Judaism kind of fills in all those details because it's so passionate about this topic. So one of the questions I always get, what is, what is heaven? What is hell? And I'm sure we'll get to heaven. Let's start with hell. Oftentimes it's referred to as Gehenna or Sheol. And these are not devil pitchfork places that they've been kind of made out in caricature of movies and, and whatnot. Probably they were geographical places in the Bible. But later in Kabbalistic thought, they became... Think of them as a stopping points on the way to heaven, right? Where you go, you stop, you pause, you refuel. And they were realms where a soul would work through its stuff, its issues, its baggage. And I'd love to talk more about that in a little bit. But one of the reasons why we say Kaddish over the year is because we believe our loved ones are on this journey and they have different stopping points. And so over the course of the year, we say these prayers for them to help them ascend. When we talk about specifics, the Talmud does an excellent job of delving deep into some specifics around Jewish law. And what does the Talmud tell us about the importance of reciting Kaddish in helping a soul through the afterlife? It's, it's a great dumb question, Dan, because so often, probably when I was the rabbi at Shirat Hayam and prior to that in, in Iowa, I probably did 500 funerals. I'm not an officiating practicing rabbi anymore. But I would say if you ask those 500 families who's Kaddish for, most of them would say it's for, it's for us, essentially. We have to say it. We have to do it. When in fact, and you're right, Dan, it's really as much or more about the soul of the loved one. And so really the idea of Kaddish is, in more new agey terms, energy right? I mean, if your love of your loved one is its energy, it's, it's something, it comes from somewhere, you can feel it, you have it, and your, your loved one is, has passed on, that energy is still there. And so from the, the Talmud, and, and more kind of specifically the Kabbalistic sources, the Zohar and other Kabbalistic uh, Jewish mystical sources, it's really about helping the soul depart or leave this world, transition through the layers to the next world, and our energy helps that loved, our loved one ascend. And so we direct our thoughts and our prayers every day, multiple times a day to our loved one. And as, as you probably know, if not, you'll read through it. The Kaddish doesn't mention death. It's not about darkness. It's not about loss. It's about life. It's about light. It's about expansion. And so when a loved one dies, we go through this intense period of sending them our energy, our love, our, our prayers. And for the next year, it's 
less and less and less and less because they need less to make the journey home. Let's talk about this world versus Olam Haba, the world to come. There's this concept of, of reward in Olam Haba. Is this the same as heaven? Or is this more speaking to the Jewish idea of like this utopian future that happens after the arrival of the Messiah? Is there an overlap there in terms of reward in heaven and reward in the world to come? I'll say that when I talk to Jews, your average Jewish person will say, we don't believe in heaven. And they'll say, why? Because we believe that we should do as much as we can in this world. But they're not mutually exclusive. That is true. We should do as much as we can in this world. We focus on, on this world. The, the rabbis say multiple times in multiple places, right, this world is the world to tend to because we're here. And, and that's a very Jewish idea that but it doesn't mean to the exclusion of Olam Haba, the world to come. So we believe in this world and we believe in the world to come. The world to come, lots of different depictions of it, one of which is it's this perfect, utopian, idyllic place. And then you get into, well, what does that mean? I mean, if you ask the rabbis of the Talmud, what do you think they're going to say? Well, we study Torah all We day study long. Torah. <laughs> <laughs> right? To a lot of Hebrew school kids out there who've graduated and barely made it through, that doesn't sound like heaven. That sounds like hell. Because uh, a lot of us had bad Hebrew school educations and experiences. So I kind of, for me, when I read the rabbis saying we study Torah all day long, that's their ideal. And that's their idea that the soul is rewarded with its ideal. I have to believe for many of your listeners, the idea would be something other than studying Torah all day long. But the point stands. It is a place of purity where you have now been rewarded with what you have loved and longed for your whole life an interesting sort of dichotomy in how the sages view this life and the next life. So one quote that I really love is from the Talmud, more precious is one hour in repentance and good deeds in this world than all of the life of the world to come. And more precious is one hour of the tranquility of the world to come than all the life of this world. Yeah, there's this old Hasidic tradition of carrying two pieces of paper in your pockets. I don't know if you've heard this. You know, one, it says the whole world was created for me. And the other, it says I am but ashes and dust. And you hold these mutually exclusive, con contradictory ideas and you put them in your pocket because there are different times. Well, actually, I, I wear a ring that says Gamze Avor, this too shall pass. And it comes from the Solomon story of when he was happy, he would look at the ring. And when he was sad, he would look at the ring. Right. And it depends what we're at and what we're dealing with. Do we need to focus on this world or do we need to focus on the next world? And this is where a lot of Jews get hung up. I would do hospital rounds. I'd go into Boston to one of the great hospitals and I'd visit people, Jews and, and, and non-Jews. And invariably, the Jews would be struggling and grappling and wouldn't want to talk about their terminal. They wouldn't want to talk about the end and what's next. And Christians invariably would. And I feel like there is a time and a place to talk about the next world. When it brings you comfort and solace and hope to move towards something bigger, Jews need to focus on the next world. I'm not worried about Jews not doing their part in this world. I'm going a little bit off script here. And this is one of the questions that I was really struggling with when we were writing our questions, which is the contrast between Christianity and Judaism when it comes to the next world. And that there's a lot more simplicity and clarity if you are raised Catholic than if you're raised Jewish, about punishment, reward, what happens after you die, in what state you were born in, and what state you'll end up. And I wonder if it's the contrast that has actually confused people like me, 
We hear a lot more from Christians on social media about what's going to happen after you die. You're going to be with, you're going to be reunited with mom and, and grandma again. And this idea that, that there, there is this other place above us where a world is recreated with everyone you know who is and has ever been. They're all up there having a great time and you're going to get there. I don't feel like we have that same clarity. But all same, at the same time, like I remember being told when I was in college and walking through campus and there were some missionaries there and they would scream at me, you must accept Christ or you're going to hell. I didn't talk about the flip side, so, did I? <laughs> there, <laughs> there, is the flip a, side there is a flip there's side. There's a reward and punishment. And of course, in Judaism, the interesting one interesting idea is that you don't have to be Jewish to end up in heaven or a better place. It's not based on your status as a Jew. But there, I think there is like sort of a white well. We can only speak to this as Jews living inside of a predominantly Christian uh, country in terms of what is in the general consciousness. So it does seem externally that there is way more of an emphasis <laughs> on this, and it's a driving factor. No, no doubt about it. So I'm interesting because I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. All my friends were either evangelical or Catholic. I didn't really have Jewish friends. And I'm, I'm living now in Denver, Colorado, where we reside. And much heavier Christian influence than certainly Boston, even the North Shore. And my friends who are, and my best friend is a Pentecostal preacher. They are so much more comfortable with the idea of heaven. It is a source of daily solace for them in ways that maybe, you know, it hits a Jew kind of square between the eyes you know, on Yom Kippur when they're really digging down deep into it. But it is not a daily source of sustenance. And it is shame. It's a shame because we need something bigger than ourselves. I see over and over again when I'm counseling people, that's what I do now full-time, logotherapist, a meaning-centered psychotherapist, based on the work of Dr. Viktor Frankl, who's a Holocaust survivor. And his thesis was, if we have meaning, we can survive and thrive in spite of everything. And what I see is my Christian clients who have ultimate purpose, ultimate meaning. They know their soul is going back to heaven. They know they're going to be reunited with loved ones. It gives them a sense of comfort and direction that the angst of my Jewish clients, have, they have to work towards. And I think that's a tikkun. That's something we have to fix, which is the great work of this podcast and this conversation, because for Jews, especially knowledge is power. Well, again, coming full circle, Judaism believes in the soul, the soul's journey and heaven. We should turn to it. We should cultivate it. It's a muscle. And the more you use it, the more strength it gives you, and it gets you meaning and purpose during those times when everything comes crashing down. And and it's also completely consistent with Jewish belief. Yeah, it, in fact, it is Jewish belief. It is Jewish right. belief. I mean, and, and this is this is the part that I think so many people are missing. This is the crux of it. This yeah. this idea that that people in other faiths might have about the clarity of the world beyond, or what that you're working toward this. This is Judaism unequivocally, you have a harder time proving to me that Judaism doesn't believe in life after life than Judaism does. It's reverse. And everybody thinks I have to make the case. I don't have to make the case. You have to make the case of why it doesn't. And ultimately, as a Jew, I don't care what you believe. Judaism doesn't care what I believe. There are 613 commandments. Maybe one of them deals with belief. It is or it isn't. It's not dependent on this little picture, Baruch Halevi on earth, saying there is a God and there is a heaven. It is or it isn't. And according to Judaism, it is. Yeah, these concepts exist whether we as individuals believe in them or not. Our personal belief is irrelevant to whether Judaism says X, Y, Z. It's really just every individual believes whatever they want to believe. But the, the point is that 
yes, Judaism has these ideas and they are so prevalent that whenever I was having these Twitter arguments and people would would tell me, oh, no, Judaism doesn't believe this. I'd be like, OK, you're bringing a Q-tip to a gunfight. Yes, please. Here's some evidence. Would you like it? And it's just the the sort of, oh, wait a minute. I never heard this was sort of a, a shock to me how many people had never, ever encountered these very basic ideas. Dan, let's go to you because you have another very basic idea here in Judaism. Resurrection. Yes. Okay, let's get to let, let's move to resurrection. So resurrection of the dead in the messianic era is an absolutely key Jewish belief. And how does this kind of factor into the wider Judaic thinking about reward and punishment? As a rabbi, at least when I was a pulpit rabbi, you have to believe in resurrection of the dead because look at Yom Kippur, right? All these Jews come back, right? Here, here we are. Where have you been all year? So sorry, those bad rabbis. Um, <laughs> that is a very good rabbi joke. <laughs> like, resurrection of the dead is one of these where I, I have to, I'm a under constructionist. If you're going to pin me down and say, what type of Jew are you? I'm a work in progress. I don't know. I, I totally disagree with all the movements equally. And so I grapple with them. My traditional piece goes to Kabbalah, goes to the soul, goes to Olam Haba, heaven. My non-traditional piece says resurrection. I don't know. Even Rambam, Maimonides, who said it was one of the articles of faith, the 13 articles of faith, even said in various writings, it's not exactly what it seems, right? Resurrection of the dead in our age sounds like the walking dead. At the moment right. you talk about it, I don't get it. I think the concept, though, Dan, is so important, which is the soul is not nothing. It's something. And that we are more than the flesh suit, right? The, ba the bag of bones and flesh that we carry around with us. That goes back to the earth. Our soul goes somewhere else. I think it was a medieval ancient attempt to understand, well, what happens when this Messiah comes back? How are we reunited? What happens in the physical realm? To me, it's grappling with these concepts. The concept is important. Sometimes I get lost in the details. I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that Please. because I'm curious about when someone passes away, when someone dies, they have to be buried with all their bodily parts, shall we say, in one location. So the thinking is when it is time to be resurrected, they can just get all their parts together and roll on over to Jerusalem. So there is like an idea that you do have to keep the physical aspect of the body together for subsequent reinstalling of the soul. Right. Well, if that's true. Then I get to choose which version of me. Right. I like the hair version better. Like, I, is it I, me at 20 or me exactly. at 30? Like, what is a, this? A little less me here, a little more me there. But the bottom line. Is it my decomposing <laughs> corpse? <laughs> yeah. Right. So I get a choice in the matter. Um, right. I, Look, Miriam, your point is a good one, and that is that the soul isn't soul, body, soul. Again, simplistic. From a Kabbalistic Jewish mystical perspective, we have layers of soul. And so our lowest layer is nefesh, and it's blood, and it's flesh, and it's not nothing. One of the most painfully, tragically beautiful sights I've ever seen is, I'm, a, I'm Israeli, I made Aliyah a few years back, and I was there, actually this was before I made Aliyah, 20 years ago, and I was on site after a, a bombing. And who were one of the first groups to show up? The Hevra Kadisha, the, the burial society. And they show up going through, and it's very gruesome, and I'm sorry, but they go through the grass and the walls and whatever to find anything that they have to that was of that person to bury them. Why? Because their body is not nothing. It's something. It's not everything, 
but it's also a piece of who we are. And so I think that that's the piece that resonates with me, Miriam, is that our body and our flesh needs to be treated with dignity and valued for what it is, but not overvalued because the next level of soul is ruach. And that's emotion, that's feeling, that's thought. And that's part of who we are. That doesn't go back to the earth. That stays here in this world and in the hearts of our loved ones. And then the highest or the higher level is neshama. And it's kind of this idea when we think of spirit and soul, that's what goes straight back to Olam Haba, the world to come. And what I love about it is it's not this simplistic, I'm alive and I'm dead, I'm body and I'm soul, but we are interwoven into the tapestry of the physical world and the emotional world and the spiritual world. There's so many Jewish folk tales about the dead hearing what we speak when we're walking around cemeteries talking. They can hear us. They can sort of interact with us. And that kind of leads us into the next idea I want to talk about, which is reincarnation. And I actually was thinking, I'm thinking back to our Halloween episode. We did it a couple weeks ago. That's exactly what a dibuk is. Maybe people are familiar from like Yiddish horror. The concept of a dibuk, you are haunted when another soul tries to hang out inside your body when you are currently already using it. But that's the concept of Jewish reincarnation in, in a way. Gilgul, it's called rolling, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So how does this idea fit in to the wider ideas we've been exploring? You just like the easy questions, don't you? I do. <laughs> this is definitely one that challenges us. But again, one, once again, Judaism has something to say about it. Now, this one is probably less of a given right, where there's a lot of dissenting voices around reincarnation, but there's a lot of consenting of um, voices, one of which is Joseph Carl, one of the great mystics and also founders of normative Judaism as we think about it. And his idea was that we're ascending. We're always evolving. Judaism believes in evolution. Everything is evolving higher and upwards. And so if our soul is here, and our soul, I think of it as a, a classroom. You know, we have a curriculum. We're here to learn something. We chose, our soul made a contract to come into this world for a particular set of circumstances so that we could evolve. When we go to the next world, did you graduate? I like putting this in movie terms because people can really see it in action. And one of them is Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks. You should watch it. It's really about life as a classroom and your soul as here's the student. And when you get to the next world, you have a decision to make. Did you learn what you needed to learn? If not, come back and repeat the seventh grade. It's, and people, people need to see these things depicted. And I think movies are a great place to do it. If you, before I forget, one of them is What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams. If you want to understand the Jewish idea of, of hell, watch What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams, who a man who goes through hell to find his wife but it's not a punishment because God is a punishing God. It's a consequence of what we need to work through in order to grow. And that's to your point of reincarnation, where if we choose to come back, there must be a reason why, and there must be an evolutionary growth path that this place can offer us. And it does, because this is the place of free will, right? We can just go and sit in heaven and study Talmud all day and you know sip margaritas or whatever your version of that is. Or... We can come back and we can work through some of the stuff that we didn't work through in this lifetime. And as an aside, it comes down to me and my study of Kabbalah of fear or love. If you lived a fear, you know, a, a life where you were afraid and you and, and you followed where that took you, it took you down deep, dark, tragic paths. 
And so you come back to work through your fears to grow in love. And that's what God is. And we ascend back to this place of heaven of love. There are so many ideas about what heaven and hell look like in Judaism. And I'm going to talk now a little bit about one of my favorite threads, Twitter threads on this topic, which is what I always throw at people when they're trying to argue with me. I'm like, here, check this out. So Rabbi Shai Rishon at Manish Tanah, if you want to follow him on Twitter, he sourced all of the following from this 18th century Ladino Kabbalistic work, Moim Loez, about the seven chambers of heaven and the seven chambers of hell. And they each have kind of a different flavor, if you will, a different demon or angel who's in charge of it. It's for different people. So for example, we've got Bor, which is like the lowest hell chamber and the one for people who spoke maliciously. And it's kind of got a fiery, tortury vibe, kind of like a cliche hell. But there's also different heavens that are so interesting. There's one called Etzem Hashemayim, where the souls of people who died as a result of anti-Semitism reside, which is such an interesting concept that over time, Jewish theology, Kabbalah created a space for the victims of anti-Semitism. There's one called Noga for people who wanted to complete their good works, but were not able to. And then there's one, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, sort of like a VIP lounge for the best of the best, where the holiest souls chill until Moshiach, the Messiah, arrives, and then they can go hang out there. What's your personal favorite or most impactful description that you've come across for you about Jewish ideas of the afterlife? So I think that those are, that's interesting. And to me, what that says is, is that we need to believe, and, and I think rightly so, we, we should believe that there are consequences for our choices, right? I mean, that's just a, that's a law of physics, right? To every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I like to really kind of go deeper into what, what are the nuances of that heaven saying? It's saying that we are designers of our lives and our lives after this life. And so you're really manifesting, you're creating this version of heaven that is fitting for the energy of what you did and who you are. And it receives you, Kabbalah receives you on the other side. Again, what dreams may come does a really great job of of talking about different types of heaven. To, to answer your question, so mine is a very simple one. I believe we are here to answer one question. It's a question, and I, I, I do a lot of counseling. I have coaching programs around it, but I've built my life around it. It's the same question you're asked at a cocktail party. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Dan, hey, Miriam, I'm Baruch. What's the next question they say? They put their hand out and say, what's your name, right? And we answer it and we say, hey, I'm Baruch. But that's not the question. The question of what's your name, your Shem, is who are you? Why are you here? What are you all about? And to answer your question, Miriam, it says that the angel of Duma, um, the angel that's going to meet you and escort you across in Judaism. Yes, people, Judaism does believe in angels. I don't know about Jews, but Judaism does. We, we got a ton. <laughs> we, got, we got a ton. And a not ton many, of demons. Not as many as the Catholics, but we have, we have our share. But the angel of Duma meets you and says one question. What's the question Duma's going to look at you and you got to answer? What's your name? That's the question of your life. And if you can answer that, you've created heaven. And if you can't, and I counsel people all the time who go to the mirror, I say, go to the mirror and look at yourself. Do you know who you are? Some people can't even look at themselves in the mirror. That is hell. I don't know what's on the other side, but I know that the hell we create is when we don't know who we are and why we're here, that's a hell. 
And when we do, that's heaven. And to me, that's that idea of the angel escorting us with that question across the threshold. It's incredible that you mentioned this because when you say, who are you? My five-year-old has this thing she started doing now only to me, doesn't do it to my wife. She'll come up to me, she'll look at me and she'll say, who are you? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, I'm your dad. She'll say, no, who are you? Wow. I'm like preparing okay, myself. I am very confident that your daughter actually is the angel of death. I'm very confident of that. I'm going to work on my answer now. But wow. that's, a, that's a great point, Dan, because in, there's this famous midrash, you probably know it, maybe some of your listeners know it, but when we come here, we know everything we need to know, right? And then the moment we come here, the angel touches our lip and says, shh. And in that moment, the angel says, don't tell, don't tell your secrets. And we forget everything, but that's the key. And my wife, Ariella and I, we created this organization, Soul Centered, and that's, we help people in the second half of life, the afternoon of life. Go deeper into who are you? And it's not about becoming somebody else. It's about remembering who you are because you are, you have all the answers within you, everything you need to know. You've come from a place of pure knowing. You're here to remember. And your your daughter sounds like an, an enlightened being. She may be. She has her moments, right? <laughs> I, I'm a little bit intimidated, but yes. <laughs> She's terrifying. I respect her utterly. In Judaism, one very interesting thing that maybe people don't know, but there is absolutely ideas of communicating with the dead. And you may be familiar from our Halloween episode. We talk about um, the Witch of Endor. We talk about the the sort of forbidden aspects of people in the in the Torah and the Talmud are always like, no, no necromancy. Don't talk to the dead. Well, that's because they actually believe that it's a possibility that we should avoid, but it's definitely possible. So let's talk more about communicating with the dead. One of my favorite topics. I've been dealing with it for 25 years, and I'll give you a little backstory as to why. As many of your listeners might know, I wrote a book um, when I was at Shirat Hayam in the North Shore called Spark Seekers. Uh, morning with meaning, living with light. And it was my journey about surviving the loss of both my father and my grandmother, uh, his his mother, to suicide. They completed suicide. She, when I was 15, he, right when I moved to the North Shore in 2006. And my sister, after my grandmother's suicide, started channeling. She was only a kid at the time, but she started automatic writing. And she started coming up with things that she couldn't know, just things about my grandmother. And she would go to my dad details of the suicide. Nobody knew. And my father was blown away. And that evolved over time into her becoming a psychic medium. She's now a world-renowned psychic medium. She's had television shows, whatever. Her her name is Rebecca Rosen. I actually moved back here to Denver with my family so I could be near her when we work together. I work with my wife, who's a healer, and my sister, who's a psychic medium. And 20 years ago, I was challenged almost all the time about my sister as a psychic medium. Who? By whom? By rabbis. They would attack her for being the witch of Endor or the witch of Denver. So I would be defending her and bringing out the Jewish sources that Miriam, you're throwing out there on Twitter all the time and showing them to rabbis. And now fast forward 20 years later, nobody really attacks her anymore. Certainly not rabbis. In fact, rabbis are some of her best clients now. Because there's been a shift, a paradigm shift in the way we think about necromancy, talking to the dead. One of them happened because one of my mentors who I studied with in rabbinical school, um, Ellie Spitz, about 20 years ago, wrote a book called Does the Soul Survive? 
one of his mentors wrote a book called Many Lives, Many Masters, Brian Weiss. That was about hypno-regression and being taken back into past lives. This, this stuff is mainstream now. So over the past 20 years, we've seen a paradigm shift where you may not believe in it, but there's certainly not this hostility in Jewish circles that there once was. And one of the reasons is because programs like this and folks like yourself are educating people to the facts. And the fact is Judaism believes that it's kosher to talk to the dead. It's not kosher to do to do rituals and degrading kind of things around death that they used to do during the Bible and desecrate bodies and, and go and dig up bodies and talk to them. That's not what this is. This is something far more pure, far more simple. And, and honestly, one of the most cathartic experiences I've ever seen is for somebody to get a message from the other side. It brings them comfort like nothing else. I always tell people to read Jewish Magic and Superstition by Joshua Trachtenberg as that that's that was my first understanding of this and and realizing that the prohibitions around speaking to the dead are very specific in what they say and when you look at it it's because of the belief that it's real it's not that don't do this because it's just baloney and you're just falling for it it's like don't do this because it works and this is not the way we talk to the dead this is not the way that we behave right but it's real it's in the same way that Demons are real in Judaism. Absolutely. I always talk about Azazel on this podcast. Like it's my number one thing to talk about. They aren't crazy ideas within Judaism. You don't, you, and you know, so you don't, pro, yeah. you don't prohibit things that you don't need right. to, right? If, right, right. You only prohibit them because people are doing, because they're doing them wrong. Right. They're doing it wrong. Exactly. I, I find what you're saying so interesting though, because I, too, struggle with the idea of communication with the dead. I have often wondered what would happen if I was able to go to a medium and ask to connect with my father who passed away 15 years ago. I am an atheist. I don't actually believe in any of this. All I believe in is Jewish literacy and knowing what you're rejecting before you reject it. But it's such a fascinating idea what Jewish, being a Jewish medium an authentic Jude Jewish medium looks like. So, I mean, it's maybe a personal question, right. but how does she, how does she see her work? So first I'll tell you a little bit more about my thoughts on, on the communication. Then I'll tell you about her work. Love is if, if you've ever, you know, loved somebody, a parent, a child, I mean, that's everybody listening. I think you believe that it's more than just neurons firing. Right. And I just look at my kids and I think, oh, that's a chemical release. Honey, I have such a chemical release when I look at you. Right. I mean, it's not going to win any <laughs> friends and influence people. Most people I know at the time of a loss of a loved one will say that their love is transcendent. They don't know what that mm -hmm. means, but they know that it's not dead. The body's dead. The, the, the love is not. Well, that love is energy. I call it whatever the heck you want. It's energy and energy isn't created or destroyed. So where does that energy go? Well, it changes forms. I tell, I work with people who are grieving all the time and say, your loved one isn't dead. Their body is, but they're not. Your love isn't, right? There's so much that transcends death. Well, let's start tapping that. Let's start listening to it. It's like a muscle. It's like anything else. Is it the relationship you want? No, I want my loved one back. That's not the choice. 
So do you want a relationship? Yes, I do. So let's cultivate that. And you start listening and you start paying attention and you start feeling and seeing the world through that lens. You start to see signs. You start to hear messages. You start to feel connections. Everybody's a medium. My sister happens to have strengthened her muscle. It's the old radio dial. She tunes in a little more than you and I, because that's what she focuses on. And maybe she's got the the muscles for it. Like some people have the muscles to be an athlete. She's got the muscles to be a medium, but we all got the muscles. We've got to stop outsourcing our power to people outside of ourselves to do this for us. Yes, go to her, go to a psychic medium, but don't for a second think that they got it and you don't. And that's to me, one of the messages of the rabbis that we're afraid that we would give away our power and become idolaters. I mean, what's an idolater? To say that you are the source, right, of my, of my connection, as opposed to, no, there is a source of connection, and I am going to tap into that. And so when people go to her, my sister will be the first one to say, I'm going to give you messages and signs, but they're yours, and you have this ability to connect, so do the connecting. I, I keep thinking about how this relates to our previous episode about dreams, and I have feel like I have been visited by departed friends in dreams that I feel them. I feel them in my dreams. And I'm like, when I hear what you're, what you're saying about what your sister does, this energy doesn't come to me consciously. doesn't come to me when I visit my friend's grave. It comes to me in dreams. And I wonder if that's something that's to do. That's very Jewish. It's a very, it must be a very Jewish thing. I go to a grave. I don't feel much. I go to sleep. I feel this person visit me and I wake up and I say, I saw Beth. And it, it's, it's really profound. So I'll just kind of jump on that question, if not a question, a beautiful insight. And that is, I only, I couldn't, when I uh, lost my dad, I could only feel him when I was jogging. Kaddish did nothing for me. It just meant nothing to me. I felt like I was doing it for other people. But when I would go jogging, I would feel, I would cry. I would feel him. Partially, I think it was a physical, physiological re release. Partially, it's because I got out of my own way got out of my head. I got into my body. And I think the same is true with dreams where we are in this place where it's no longer ego. We're no longer sitting there at the, the gate saying, this is real. This is not, I was told this, I was told not this. And we're just out of the way and they can, we can receive what they have to offer in a dream state that I think it's harder for many of us when we're in a waking state. So that one time that my dad showed up in a dream, like a month, like a week or a month or something after he died and he handed me a stick of mozzarella and walked away. I want to know what that means. And I say this as somebody who does not believe in this, mm. but it seems like what you're saying is that the reason I'm not communicating with my dead father is because I am not exercising those muscles. I'm intentionally not exercising those muscles because of my identity as a non-believer. So that's a very interesting thought and something that I need to maybe think about is when I throw out, have I thrown out the baby with the bathwater, essentially? Is that what's, what's happening here? So hmm. forget which Hasidic teacher said, all great journeys begin with one word in Hebrew. What? Or lama, right? I don't know. Or what? Right? Opening, saying I don't know is a spiritual practice. I don't know. I, I will never tell somebody like my Pentecostal best friend, this is heaven, this is hell, this is how you get there. I don't know. I don't really, I don't want to know. I want to, I want to open myself to the journey. I don't know if my marriage will last, right? 21 years. I love her to death. She loves me to death. 
I don't know. Every day is a an act of faith. I don't know if, if the earth will stop spinning tomorrow. I don't know. I, act of faith and so forth. Like, why is it that we're so certain about something like the soul's survival? I don't know, but I tell you one thing, it is a hell of a lot more exciting to be open to the mystery of I don't know than I know this is the way it is. Because in that moment, to me, that the hope, the energy, the, the faith, for, for me, not for everybody, it just kind of dissipates. And I like the the possibility that my father is on the other side calling me and I'm listening. It makes every day a journey. And you know, turn to the great physicists like Albert Einstein, who ultimately believed that there was something transcendent. What it was, not so interested in the details of it, but that there is something greater than ourselves. If Jews would just turn to that alone, I think we would have a lot less angst, a lot more faith, and a lot more comfort and joy, especially when the darkness descends. Again, I see all of my clients who are Jewish have to overcome this hurdle from the outset of an angst that my Christian clients don't always have. My Jewish clients almost invariably have it. And we got to get back to this place of kind of a level playing ground. Okay, we can build from here. I, that right there is proof of this energy you're talking about, an inherited energy of Jewish history that is inside of us, that we have this angst. Yes. That's, yes. that's We're born with it. You can't You can't get rid of it. You can only channel it, I think. But you can heal it. My wife is a healer, and she does a lot with the genogram, which is healing generational trauma. And trauma comes from individual experience, but also generational. Think about all of the trauma that we've built our lives on as Jews, and some of it we wear with pride. I mean, I have a Holocaust tattoo, and that's a whole other conversation, that this says, never again. And it, it has Dr. Victor Frankl's number, 119104, and I carry it with me um, to transform tragedy into blessing. But I also am very well aware that I also carry trauma on my body and in my heart that I have to daily stand up and face and work through and heal. And I think that that's a starting point of saying just because we have it doesn't mean we should carry it. Rabbi B, you uh, are currently in Denver but you have some deep ties to our area. And can you talk a little bit about what you did in the North Shore, how you came up here and how it influenced you? Absolutely. I came to the North Shore in 2006, I believe it was, with my wife, the formation of Congregation Shirat Hayam on the North Shore, Swampscott, as they say, Swampscott, two merging, relatively dying synagogues came together and they had a decision to make. Did they want to die together or did they want to go a different direction? And over the, about a 10-year period, we went in a different direction. We did some transformational things, wrote a book on it with Jewish Lights, Revolution of Jewish Spirit. And I'm so proud of the work we did in evolving Judaism into the 21st century. I came to this point about 2014 after Tsuketan, Operation Protective Edge in Israel. I went there and fell in love again with Israel. I'd lived there many times, but my wife and I said, it's now or never. We have to make Aliyah, be a part of the dream. And we went there. Before we did, we say goodbye to our beloved congregation, went to Israel, and were there for about four or five years and decided it was time to come back to the States. As much as we loved Israel, we're Americans, and also our work was calling us to form Soul Centered. My wife, Ariella, and I formed Soul Centered. It's a center for spiritual uh, meaning, purpose, and healing in the afternoon of life, a young idea of the second half of life. And so now I work, we both work with clients virtually to help guide them or help them find healing in the afternoon of life. And a disproportionate amount of our clients are Jewish and they're grappling with issues like 
what happens What's my purpose? Why am I here? What happens to my soul, the soul of my loved ones? Does Judaism believe in the afterlife? And all of these great questions that we're talking about here today, we need to have the answers to these questions now, not when we're scrambling, when we're dying, the end of our life, throwing together some kind of theology and philosophy. Why not have it now and give us strength to carry us forward? And so that's the work that Ariel and I do is working with clients to instill in them these very values. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Vibe of the Tribe, Rabbi B, and exploring these fascinating, complex, nuanced, just intriguing ideas about the Jewish afterlife with us. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Dan. Thank you out there for listening. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review the Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to pods. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse. Stay safe, wear a mask, and if you learned something today about the Jewish afterlife, Tweet with confidence.